And then I want to do something different, usually bigger. And so from .NET Invoice doing three to five grand a month, I was like, I want to do something 10 times bigger. And Hittail was it. It went to 30 grand a month. And then I said, I want to do something 10 times bigger. And that's when we started Drip. Hey everyone, welcome back to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. My guest today, Rob Walling, is one prolific entrepreneur. He has acquired multiple businesses, sold multiple software companies, including one for millions of dollars. He is also the successful host of a conference, has raised tens of millions of dollars to invest in small software companies, Tiny Seed, and we discuss all of that in today's conversation. He has lots of insights to share, lots of practical business wisdom. So let's get to it. Here is Rob Walling. You're listening to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. Rob, thanks for coming on the podcast, man. I'm excited to be talking with you. It is my pleasure, sir. Thanks for having me. So uh, one of the challenges, classic challenge for someone that is doing interviews in the, in this podcasting business is on one half of the listenership, I've got people who might be coming across you and your work for the first time. And then you've got another cohort that maybe you know found it because they love everything Rob Walling on, over on YouTube and they don't necessarily want to hear the, uh, the old song and dance rehashed. So we take a little bit of a novel approach through the lens of deal climbing, which is you've done a lot here. You've uh, been building products for 17 years. You've sold businesses. You've raised funds. You've run conferences. You've hosted your own show. So as a way of giving some background, but also talking about how you've had to level up your skills in selling, I want to talk through that back history through the lens of selling proportionally larger deals as time goes by and how you leveled that up. Cool. Let's dive in. I call it, what did you say? Stacking? Deal, deal stacking? climbing. Deal, deal climbing. climbing. Yeah. Cause, so, so, so my background is I uh, started an agency a little over four years ago. Our first deal was like for $400. And I remember you, the first time you sell anything, you're like, holy crap, someone's going to pay us. And then, now in hindsight, I'm like, I could barely, you know, pay a bill with that at this point in time. Right. And you slowly, you know, kind of work your way up. So, so through that lens, talk to us about the the first stuff you were selling, what the price was, what, what, what kind of value you were providing and how you got over that first hurdle. Well, for me, it was, I was a software developer in the early 2000s and I realized I didn't love working for other people because it just kind of got a little boring. I didn't enjoy working on projects that, that, that I didn't control, you know? So I wanted a flexible schedule. I wanted to work from home. This was before people work from home, man. We're talking 2003, you know, like nobody, yeah. it was like, if, you know, it was a crazy day if you could like log in through some crazy VPN from home to, to work on a server. So you'd remote, remote into a server in order to do it. And um, so I, the first thing I started selling, even though I wanted to sell products, like some type of software product, or I wanted to write a book, something repeatable. The first thing I sold was my time. And I was a freelance software developer nights and weekends. And of course, I started at, you know, 40 or $50 an hour. And well, I lived in California, right? So it's kind of expensive. And uh, slowly leveled that up. And then I had to restart And when I got into products, because suddenly it's not dollars for hours anymore. It's can you get someone to pay you a few hundred dollars for the software product? And that itself, to me, is, is a big jump uh, in terms of difficulty. And so what were you selling your first product for? What was, what was the, how did you figure out what to sell it for? So I 
I had a few products that I built and they took incredible amounts of time. By this time, I'm billing almost $100 an hour as a freelancer. And I'm thinking, this is a hamster wheel. I don't want to do this forever. So I want to build something that I can sell over and over and over. I'm going to write some code. I'm going to build invoicing software. I'm going to build you know, uh, time tracking, whatever. So I start, I built several different things. None of them worked. And eventually, I was posting on a forum. Or no, there was a post on a, on a forum called SitePoint. This is, it became Flippa, if people know that, but SitePoint back in the day. And some guys said, hey, we have the software. It's not really launched yet, uh, but we have a wait list of customers who want it. It's, uh, who want it and it's invoicing software built in .NET, right? So it runs on Windows. It was web-based, not SaaS. This is pre-SaaS. So it's downloadable software. And they said, we're looking for a business partner to help us market it. And I'm like, you know, I know a little bit about marketing, not a lot, but I, I'm a good developer and I know how to write and I knew a little bit about SEO because I'd been a blogger. That was it. So I didn't know anything else, right? No paid ads, no sales, no business development, you know, no cold outreach. And so I approached these guys and I said, you know, I don't want to partner, but I might want to just buy this whole thing from you. Like, how long did it take you to build it? And so they said, oh, like um, 400 hours of dev time. And I was like, yeah. And it was a good piece of software. Like, it was solid, a lot of code. And I knew, and I, start, I started doing mental math of like, that's like 40 grand if I were to build that at 100 bucks an hour. So Started talking to them and wound up acquiring it for too much money. I paid about eleven thousand for it. Um, it. They told me it was doing like seven hundred to a thousand a month. It turns out it was doing about two fifty. This is again pioneer days before a lot of this was verifiable um, or easily verifiable, and I didn't know what I was doing. So they were char- they were charging ninety nine bucks a month for it. Or no, I'm sorry, ninety nine dollars one time for this software, and they had sold like a thousand, two thousand dollars worth of this. It was, and I got in there buggy as hell. Like your invoicing software, you have one job and it's to do math correctly. And they literally had math errors in, in, in their invoicing software. So uh-huh. I had to, I didn't have to totally rewrite it, but I spent six, you know, I was working a day job or, do, you know, my consulting during the day because I had a wife and a kid and a house. And then I was working 20 hours a week at night, 30 hours a week. And I remember having my little guy strapped. He was like, you know, four months old and we were at a restaurant and we're eating and like my phone buzzes for a support email and I walked out and I'm like answering a support email on a Bluetooth or on a Blackberry, you know, this is before iPhone. And so th- to answer your question, you said, how much did I charge for it? So they were charging 99 bucks a month or $99 one time. I keep saying a month because it's like, it's just so crazy to me that, you know, that we were doing that. So yeah. the following month I tripled the price and I said, I think 300 is probably the right number. And of course the prior month we had sold three copies for for 100 and the next month we sold three copies for 300 and it went up from there. So I eventually grew it into a nice little business. It, it peaked at about 4 or 5,000 a month, which was great. I had a full-time, you know, again not full-time, a full-time consultancy basically. And so that was an awesome stair I call it the stair step approach to bootstrapping, you know, you were called deal stacking or deal climbing. But to me it was it gave me some confidence. I learned some SEO, I started running ads, you know, and, and it built out that tool belt I needed to then level up to the next step. Because that's a, a common occurrence, I mean, in, in any sales position, but particularly an entrepreneurial endeavor, where it often feels like this glass ceiling that you're trying to break through to understand, so what would deliver enough value to someone that, you know, in, in your case, you're talking about old school software products where it's a one-time sale. What would make this worth, worthy of a monthly subscription as opposed to a one-time fee? What would make my consulting service worth $100 an hour versus $50 an hour. And sometimes it's just the compounding of your experience and your capacity to talk to past projects. But sometimes it's also 
just I, I also like, like you start to see more of the board and conceive of why is this so valuable to someone and it's not a factor of how many dev hours went into it it's not a factor of you know how well i can spin a yarn but actually i understand how this software or service provides leverage to this organization so that they can go out and do more business as well that's right and i think raising prices whether you're raising prices on an individual product like i did or whether you are raising your ambitions from project to project of this product to this ebook to this piece of software to this real estate deal or whatever along the way you gain experience of just knowing like you said you see more of the board you gain confidence and i think that's not talked about enough i know i i was not raised with with self confidence so when i wouldn't have these sales conversations i would be super nervous i was not a good salesperson still not great but i've at least learned to do something you learn you uh learn or earn um some logos of like oh i've worked with that company um we've provided that result you build a portfolio of results that you can show um, you usually sometimes build an audience and a network, which are two different things, you know, so I can, go, and, and then you build skills. Like again, I, I was building SEO, uh, pay-per-click ads, uh, display ads. I just had to learn them as a developer. Cause I was like, well, no, you can't hire this out. There was no outsourcing at that point, right? It was 2005. I, I couldn't just hop on Upwork and go find someone to run ads for me. So I just had to learn. So those five or six things I just named they apply to whether you're building a consultancy, whether you're in real estate deals, whatever you're selling, those five things will come along with you. And I, I think may, they make success easier the longer you're in the game. And even selling the company itself. So you had bought the company, but then you you sold it. And that had to be a light bulb of not only seeing the entire arc of I bought it, I improved it, and I sold it, but also I sold it for a sum that was probably greater than any sale that you had previously had, right? Yeah, that one in particular, that was .NET invoice. And that one in particular, I got a business partner later because I wanted to focus on some other stuff. And I eventually just gave him my half because to your point, I had acquired the next thing, which was a SaaS app. And it was due, I paid 30 grand for that one. And it was doing 1500 a month. And by the time I left it, that one I sold, it was doing almost 30 grand a month. And that one, again, I paid $30,000 for it. And I put in like a year of my time, year and a half, all the revenue that came through which is, it was 90 plus percent net margin because it was just me. There were, it was me and a couple contractors, hosting costs, it was nothing. And plus the sales, uh, the actual revenue, not the revenue, but the sales proceeds from when I sold that, it was called Hittail, was just north of a million dollars. That was an absolute life-changing event for me. I grew up working class. My dad was an electrician. My mom raised us. I made $4.50 an hour at my first job. We used to drink powdered milk when my mom wanted to save up money to do something fancy. Like, I wasn't poor. We always had food, but I had never seen $10,000 when I bought .NET Invoice. I had never seen $30,000 when I bought Hittail. It was an enormous risk for me. It was terrifying. So to sell Hittail, I didn't sell it for a million. Let's be clear. It was all the revenue over the course of a couple of years plus the sale was $1 million. And that was an absolute life-changing stair-step moment for me. And then in terms of translating that into more domains, because we're talking about software products, you then went on to host a conference, micro-conference, you sell sponsorships to that, you got a podcast, you, you, you sell your own business. Like, How did that how quickly did that permeate into other domains? Or you, you seem like you've you've got some self-awareness here. If I wasn't raised with necessarily confidence and that was that was a, a battle or its own kind of stair step to climb, how quickly did that extend into other areas? Or was that kind of a more conservative expansion outward? 
I think I got there slower than a lot of people will. Um, and I, it was par- partially my upbringing, partially my introversion. Um, I enjoy talking to a microphone and a camera more than I enjoy being in a room with a bunch of people because it just stresses me out, you know? So for me, I started having success with .NET Invoice 2006, 2007. Success. I'm not, I'm not, you know, flying private, but four grand a month on top of everything else I'm making is like, it was, it was like, this is amazing. Like I'm just banking all that money. And that's where I had the money then to buy the next thing. Um, so it probably took me until it probably took me another six, seven, eight years to get to really find my stride. In the meantime, though, I, like I wrote a book that is still, a, you know, I self published it. It's still doing amazingly well, sells a couple hundred copies a month. It's sold. I don't know, 12, 15,000 copies at this point about, you know, starting small startups. Uh, it's called Start Small, Stay Small. And that gave me the confidence in my, kind of in my communication, but maybe not my sales, right? Because it was just a marketing job, right? I had an audience, I marketed, I sold it. It gave me confidence that what I was saying was on the right track because people said, this is really good, you know, and I got a lot of five-star reviews. And then the next year did, did start the event, MicroConf. Um, and slowly being on stage there, I think was a big, game changer for me personally. Interesting. Because yeah, it, it takes us, and I don't want to say the end point, but the current you know realm of the, the chapter that you in, you're in is you built another company, Drip, you sold Drip, and then you followed that up by creating Tiny Seed, which just raised a second fund of more than $25 million. We're not talking way bigger numbers than 10,000, 11,000 for an app yep. here, Rob. That's We're right. talking about you know sums that are now you know, at the at the low range of like what, what one would call the institutional level, but it, it is just a, a completely different game. So, I guess you know what what can you translate there? Yeah. <laughs> well, well, less less. How did you get there? And more like what is the same and what is different about those type of sales versus the kind of preceding sales? Because you know, building an audience on your podcast and then saying, "Hey, I've got a book for sale," on the face of it looks counter completely opposite to um, raising a $25 million fund, but there have to be some similarities and principles that were a through line. Yes. I think some of the principles are things like offer a lot of value to a lot of people. Not something that I've been doing for 17 years, you know, blogging. I I wrote 200 and something essays, um, have almost 600 episodes of a podcast that's free. And that audience isn't huge. It's tens of thousands of people. You know, it's not millions, but it's the right tens of thousands. It's it's influential bootstrappers. It's aspiring bootstrappers. And it's people who listen and get to know you because you're talking in their ear for 30 minutes every week for 11 years, right? Because it started, oh, it's 12 years now um, as of next month. Um, I So I think giving value to people and building, even though it's a one-way relationship, like a podcast or you know any type of audience building, there's still a relationship there. So those are two things I think right away, like provide value, build relationships. And then I think the other thing is, it depends on the person, but like for me, I get bored of doing the same thing over and over. It's just not my jam. So for me, I come, I learn, and then I want to do something different, usually bigger. And so from .NET Invoice doing three to five grand a month, I was like, I want to do something 10 times bigger. And Hittail was it. It went to 30 grand a month. And then I said, I want to do something 10 times bigger. And that's when we started Drip. Grew that to millions. Had an exit there. And each of these things was a, a it was a personal motivation. It, and it wasn't, to, I wasn't, I think I was trying to prove some stuff to myself internally. 
But I also did want that moment where I could say, this is the freedom line and I can work on anything I want for the rest of my life. That's what I was seeking, right? And so I think that there has to be some type of intrinsic motivation to get you there. Mine personally was to have enough money that I never had to work again, even though I knew I was going to work. It was just that I could work on whatever I wanted. But other people have a motivation of, oh, my dad always believed in me or my mom always believed in me. And there's a, there's a voice, whether positive or negative, that's driving them. Um, there's, you know, I think there has to be some motivation on top of the, hey, provide value and and build relationships. And there's also a little bit of the, you know, I, I don't, I'm trying to find the right metaphor here, but the like, take the leap onto the next lily pad, even if you're not completely sure what the contours of that next lily pad looks like, because, you know, I, I could conceive of an entire argument as, hey, you've got this uh, little business that you've acquired that's given you an extra 4000 a month. Like, let that thing ride. Don't don't rock the boat. Let's keep this going. But you had, you just articulated two specific decisions. Let's 10x. Let's, let's not just take an incremental change. Let's take a stepwise change. And the, you know, Maybe it's confidence, maybe it's audacity, maybe it's an appetite for risk, whatever the, whatever the definition of that is. But that's also incumbent if you're going to then reach the, the heights that you now have with Drip and Tiny Seed. Yeah, you're right. And to your point about risk, I would have gotten here faster if I was less risk averse. I'm actually a pretty risk averse person. I was never willing to go into debt credit card debt or otherwise to grow businesses, I was never willing to risk our house to risk our livelihood. So I, I really did a little bit of the two le- one leg on each lily pad for a long time. I mean, I worked at the day job 40 hours a week and then started freelancing 20 hours a week when I was married and just told my wife, like, I'm going to slowly transition to freelancing, but I'm not quitting the job until I know that I have, you know, 10 grand a month in income or whatever. Then I transitioned to that. And then I was like, all right, well, I'm going to do products. I'm going to do them nights and weekends. So then I do 20 hours a week of products and 40 hours a week of freelancing. And then I slowly transition, you know, into that. I had enough products to replace the income. If if I was a different personality type, some people out there, they just take the big leap and say, I'm going to raise a bunch of money and do big SaaS from the start. Or I'm going to put 30 grand on credit cards and do it. That's not my that's not my jam. So I I got where I wanted to get eventually. It just took me, you know, 11 years. I sold Drip in 2016. And that was the moment where it was a mic drop moment for me of like, all right, this is the new phase of my life. What's next? Now I can't just say I want a 10X because I just don't want to, I don't want to do a 10X bigger. I need to like change course at that point. Interesting. Okay. So so then Tiny Seed is this change of course, uh, partially from the investing as opposed to the building mindset. But I, I'm curious if you would would buy this definition or if you want to you know, bounce it back at me, that's totally fine. Peter Thiel will always talk about you know the most interesting, the best companies are founded on a secret. And maybe like early days, it's that, you know, a remote only business is a viable business or that all of, you know, these functions that have previously been paper are going to be digitized. Those are kind of older versions of this. And, and a lot of your career has been on the, the premise that, you know, to build a software company, it doesn't have to be venture backed, angel, you know, crazy hockey stick ramp. It can be this, this bootstrapper mentality. How would you define, would you define that as the secret on which tiny seed is premised because it is not the kind of conventional uh, early private company investing model that most people have been taught since they watched 
whatever the social network or whatever Facebook uh, movie was called. Right. Or read any book about any startup ever that's always venture backed. Right. So yeah, I think I agree with you that I, I should tell people what Tiny Seed is, right? It's the first startup accelerator for software bootstrappers, for SaaS bootstrappers. And we do provide, it's a little counterintuitive because we provide funding. And after they take funding, I call them mostly bootstrapped because they're still extremely capital efficient. We usually fund between 100 and 200 ish thousand um, for, you know, a small portion of the company. And the secret, the, the secret is that there's this thing called the software industry iceberg where the software that everyone knows about the Ubers and the Googles and the Facebooks is this tiny little blip up here. And the real 99%, 95% of software companies in the world doing hundreds of thousands, millions, tens of millions a year in revenue, you've never heard of. And we actually wrote, you go to tinyc.com slash latest, and we wrote a piece about this where we looked at all the acquisitions of software companies in a given time period. I forget how long it was. And like 15% of them got any mentions on like TechCrunch, Mashable, but anything that we would we would read. All these other ones, it's like founder walks away with 30 grand, um, sorry, 30 grand, 30 million, 40 million, 50 million. No one hears about it. So yeah, it is kind of a secret. And the way I stumbled into it was I started writing about it in 2005, blogging of like, I'm this little entrepreneur. I'm trying to figure stuff out. Then I wrote a book. Then I started a podcast. Then I started MicroConf. And suddenly we had this worldwide community, tens of thousands strong, who all speak the same language, right? It's like, we're software bootstrappers, but no one else really knows that we exist. And it's just now, I think, starting to break through. You'll see some articles like uh, the... New York Times, was it, wrote about like software bootstrappers. And it's always this big shock. Did you know you can build software companies without funding? And it's like, oh my gosh, I, that was literally in the introduction of my book 12 years ago, where I said, this whole book is about, I'm not anti-funding. I'm just anti the narrative that everyone needs to raise funding in order to build these amazing businesses. And so Tiny Seed comes right out of MicroConf, right? And it comes right out of my podcast. The mission of all three of those things is exactly the same. It's to multiply the worldwide population of independent startups. That's the mission of the podcast. It's free. That's the mission of MicroConf. It's a community. And that's the mission of Tiny Seed. What some, you know, 20, 30% of people in our community might want to do that. And that's where we're able to give funding and then a deeper mentorship. And I mean, it's really fascinating. Uh, I mean, maybe you're talking about like a, a major media headline. Often, if that's who's covering it, it's a little too late, right, in, in any yeah. sort of trend. But the fact that it can, you know, just because you see it like right now in the present, I think that particularly when I was younger, I, I've, I've seen it start to wane. But I remember like this feeling of almost like anxiety, like it's happening right now. I have to act right now. I have like now and not necessarily realizing that, you know, these these cycles don't just go by in the snap of a finger. Maybe if they are, they're more of a fad than a mm -hmm. cycle. But mm -hmm. something like you know, people with skills in in writing code, building software products that you know save customers and clients time and, and efficiency, it's not going away. And there's going to be different manifestations and different evolutions as as, as that time goes by. But um, you know, you you can plant yourself. In a, in a mega trend like that and continue to unearth opportunities as time passes. That's right. And at least in my experience of the way I've done it, a lot of it's accidental. 
a lot of it's like I'm super interested in being nerding out and going deep on this topic. So somehow entrepreneurship was something I just fell in love with when I was in my teens. And I said, I want to be an entrepreneur because I want to run my own company. All right. So then as I get older, it's like, oh, I learned to code when I was eight. And so it's like, I don't know. Can you can you start a company with like software? I don't know. This is the 80s. Like I didn't really know any of this stuff. And so to me, it was just always talking about things I was interested in and doing it for a really long time. Right. I have, like I said, almost 600 episodes of the podcast, a couple hundred essays, three books, working on my fourth. Like this didn't, I'll say it didn't happen by accident that people heard about it, but it did happen by accident that I wound up in the middle of this, what's a pretty incredible movement, you know, of basically bootstrapped and mostly bootstrapped founders. We call them independent, independent founders, independent startups uh, that are really doing it on their own terms. So building off of that, you know, there, there's these very early days where it's just even hard to find the other similar folks and, you know, the community you've built, uh, Tropical MBA, now there's, you know, Micro Acquire and, and these other kind of Flippa and, and Empire Builders and other sort of company or places where you can even find companies like this. One of the newer phenomenon is the proliferation of these no-code tools. So for folks that, that might not be familiar, it's basically the premise that you don't have to have the software engineering ability to write code and you can build relatively robust digital tools using something like an Airtable or Bubble, or I go on and on down the list. What is your perspective on the state of these indie entrepreneurs uh, here in 2022 with the proliferation of these tools? Because candidly, I, I, I'll, I'll be very self-serving with this question. Uh, we have a successful agency. We're uh, building a, a joint venture with one of our clients that's, that's still media, that's still our bread and butter. But there's discussions going on about a potential uh, small software solution that would be used within the context of this client's firm. And I've you know, read conflicting reports about, you know, go hire a developer, teach yourself to code, use a tool like Bubble to build the thing. And it's, it's daunting to know where the prudent place would be to start. Yeah. So no code is here to stay. No code has been around for 10 years. It just didn't have a name longer than 10 years, since Zapier launched, probably pre-Zapier. It is really good for what I call line of business apps, which are internal tools. It is less good when you have 10,000 or a million consumers using something because the polish on the user experience isn't there and the scalability isn't there. It may get there. I don't know. I don't predict the future on this stuff. But we, for example, hired a producer finally after let's see, 12 years and 590 episodes of Startups for the Rest of Us, my podcast. We hired a producer two weeks ago, and um, he has spent all of his time building out an Airtable production system. Because as of four years ago, it was a Google Doc. And as of two years ago, we moved it into Notion, which is Kanban, right? And now he's building it out in Airtable. And will that work for us? Because there's you know six people collaborating on different aspects of this podcast and another one we have. Absolutely, it will. Is it ugly as hell? Yes, it is. It doesn't look good because Airtable just doesn't look good. But that's okay because it, it our producer is non-technical. And he just was able to hack it together you know, with bailing wire and duct tape. Now, would I then take that and say, you know what? I want to find, I want to sell this to a hundred other podcast producers or podcasters. I personally would not. It's not, the tech's not there yet. If I was going to do that, I would say, hey, here's what we've built. Here's how it works. Notifications. It's just super organized. It's, it's a really nice system he's built. And then I would say, you know, we are going to build this as, 
I say actual software. Of course, it's all real software, but like we're going to write custom code and build this out as a, as a Ruby app or a Python app or whatever. That's where I see the limitations in no code. It's usually the scalability. There's scalability, one thing, is if you get 10,000 people using it, it, it kind of can break. Um, the usability of it, right? The visual interface and all that is not as configurable. And then there's a little bit of brittleness to it because you're often hooking things together with webhooks like Zapier. And the reliability of webhooks, it's just not 100%, like, like if you were to build custom software is. So I don't know, did that answer your question? Yeah, I, I, so it, it's definitely, I mean, there's a reason those companies, Airtable and them have raised enormous sums and have onboarded so many people because there's countless other relatively small organizations like yours who are using an Airtable for a novel solution and finding it substantially more efficient than than Google Sheets. But the gateway to, I, I, I guess I guess if we were actually trying to arc, write out the product roadmap, someone non-technical being able to actually develop the system articulated on Airtable or one of these kind of workspace no-code tools as the basis for, hey, let's now build this as custom code, but we have the framework of everything and it's actually operational and we've actually iterated on it a couple of times, probably reduces your effective development costs because you're closer to something that is ready to go and be a product there within Airtable, as opposed to V1, iterate, V2, iterate, 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 iterate to actually get to that point. Sure. Airtable is a V1 in essence, or a V.9, as I would call it, right? It's like you have mock-ups or screen designs or whatever. And it's like, I can't really click these things. They're static. I have to use my imagination that this is going to do that. Airtable is just a prototype in essence. It's it's a prototype plus plus is how I think about it. And again, for, for what you're, you know, working out usability kinks and other things, I think it's great. Um, I, I don't know where they'll go. You know, when they raise this much money, um, I, I do think that like it spending, like it spending has always focused on like the it department does this stuff for you and we have to build the apps and host the apps. And that's really going away, you know, not totally, but it's, it's definitely decreasing. Um, I think more apps will be built outside of traditional it departments at large companies than will be built inside it departments. I mean, I think that's kind of a foregone conclusion. That makes sense. And that just empowers everyone in the org, even if they're non-technical, to, to f- find those efficiencies and deploy them. That's right. Um, awesome. Rob, so I have basically like two, once again, fun, selfish questions to wrap up, and then we can kind of aim towards our, our final questions here. I appreciate you giving me some of your time today. You host your own conference. I also host my own event called the Going Deep Summit. And I was wondering what you found from running MicroConf is the optimal amount of time to be talking at your own event. When I'm emceeing or when I'm giving a talk? In do total. Mean, do you mean you, from you do, stage? You mean from stage, you do, right? You do both from stage. I do. And you've probably played around with it a little bit to figure out what is what is yeah. optimal. What have you learned there? So so if I wasn't giving a talk, just emceeing, I would... I mean, it's kind of weird, right? It's like normally to kick, I kick the event off and I normally have about 15 minutes where I set, I welcome, I set the stage. I give some logistics, but I also kind of want people to be excited and welcome the new 30%, you know, that's showing up 30 to 40%. Tell them this is why we're here. We we are a community. We've been around for 12 years. Like we're going to be here in 12 years. And so I'm setting the stage there. So I take about 15 minutes and then in between each speaker, there's always, you know, what there's, there's sponsors and there's other stuff happening. And that is usually... I don't know, five minutes in between each speaker, five to seven. I don't think there's a hard and fast rule. The hard and fast rule is don't be boring. 
If you're entertaining, you can talk for a long time. I watch, I can watch Eddie Izzard talk for two hours straight, but the guy's fucking hilarious, right? So that's the thing. If I'm boring, then the optimal time is as little as possible. But if I learn to have stage charisma, which I've I've hired a, a speaking coach, I have started studying improv. I have just watched other people who are charismatic on stage and tried to figure out what it is they do. Folks like Seth Godin and Jason Cohen, and I'm not I'm not copying them, but I am borrowing from them and saying, "Oh, that's a compelling pause right there." I'm going to start doing that. Right now, when I give a talk, it's it's similar. I mean, talks are normally what twenty five to forty minutes, so that would add on to my overall, you know, forty minutes. Maybe over two days, I'm totally emceeing for forty minutes, and then a talk is another thirty to forty minutes. But I think is if you're material, there are some people that I could I could listen to Jason Cohen give like three talks a day, three days in a row. You know, he's just he's just super smart and everything he says I, I find quite interesting. Yeah, I feel like that's one of the arenas in which someone and maybe this is already happening, but there's like a opportunity for someone to kind of jump the guardrails on the normal format for an event like this like in comedy it's it's dave Chappelle, right like you could literally just sit and listen to dave Chappelle talk about anything for two and a half hours three hours and to really set up an event where it's like these you know two three four dynamos like they're literally just going to talk for Mm -hmm. i don't know how long and we're going to get some weird deep places and everyone's just going to trust it and roll with it but uh yeah that's a good answer thank you and then the last one is uh my wife and i just had our first child, she turns seven months old here in the next couple of days. And uh, you've managed to accomplish all this entrepreneurial success while raising two sons. Can you talk about, and I'm not even going to call it the balancing act. I'm going to call it the teeter-totter of that um, because life is, is rarely actually in perfect balance. And I feel myself being pulled really hard in these two directions. I want to spend as much time as possible with her and being a dad. I also know that I love my business stuff and I want to give it all that I've got because I also love what I'm doing. I'm, I'm not somebody who's trying to escape one half of my life to get to the other. So so what have you learned in that regard about um, the teeter-totter? I worked in seasons. And so before I acquired Hittail, I took about 10 months and I worked eight hours a week. And I was just maintaining a bunch of stuff. And the reason was because we had our second child born. And I worked from, I, I worked that schedule from when he was born until he was about eight or 10 months old. That was super fun. And then I got super bored because like you can't, it's teeter-totter, right? It's like, you can't, we're ambitious, we're entrepreneurs. We can't just not do things. And so at about that mark, then I went all in, spent the money, bought the hit tail, ground it out. I'll admit it was way harder when they were younger. It only got easier as they got older. My kids are 11 and 15 now. They go to school all day. They come home. They get on Discord with their friends. We hang out and do VR. There's no, you know, there's management of stuff like homework and all that, but it's not like when they're seven months old and it's like someone has to be watching this child all the time. So I, but I did learn to do seasons, TikToking back and forth. I took a little bit of time once Hittail had gone up and I was kind of like, it had plateaued in essence where it was going to be. I backed off for a few months before starting trip. So I did take some like ebbs and flows in my work schedule. The other thing is I was averse early on to hiring help for anything. But now we hire everything out. So like I haven't mowed my own lawn in, you know, whatever, 10, 12 years. Snow, I live in Minneapolis, so snow removal is all handled. We actually have uh, now call, someone called a house manager who 
keeps groceries stocked, like calls the Instacarts, either makes lunch or delivers lunch. You know, I'm at we're at a place financially where we can do that. We weren't 10 years ago, but we worked our way up to that. And that was something brought up as again a construction family. We didn't do that. And in fact, I would say maybe some people in my family looked down on people who hired a lot of things out. So there was a personal yeah. thing both my wife and I had to get over of like, no, we are willing to spend money to have less things to worry about and to spend more time with these kids. And so you have to do it within your means. At first, it was a part-time nanny, two hours a day. Then it was, we had a live-in nanny for six months before she bailed. And then, you know, on and on and on. So learning to hire a lot more out than I think I was ever, than I ever saw anyone do growing up uh, has been, I think, a big win for us as we've had the means to do it. That's, uh, that tracks, that registers. And I, I, um, I don't know if you read Stratechery or, or know Ben Thompson. I heard of it. But he uh, he wrote this piece about how he's gotten so much better now that his kids are across that eight, nine, ten year old type of threshold where they're way more autonomous in different ways and going to school. And he said, I learned all this efficiency and like productivity stuff from having such limited windows when your kids are so little and they need so much attention that now that they're kind of off and doing their own thing, I feel like a superhero and my yep. ability to get stuff done is just totally on, agree with that. on another level. Yep. Word. Um, well, Rob, this has been fantastic. Before we ask our standard last questions and, and, and the interview, anything else you're hoping to share today that I didn't give you a chance to? No, I, I think that if folks listen to this podcast and I think if they enjoy it, that they would probably enjoy mine. It's called Startup to the Rest of Us. And I'm just a few episodes ahead of you and props to you, sir, because there are so few podcasts that last 500. What is this, like 505, 510? Is that where we're? Man, I've got the list up here. I'm gonna... You're you're north of 500. It just we stop counting. It's like you know, once you turn yeah. 21, you like start forgetting how old you are because that was the last yeah. big milestone. That's after 500. So, anyways, congrats on that. Thank you very much. I believe that this is either 519 or 520. I can't. Yeah, 520. There we go. Um, thank you very much. And it is it is a, a fantastic show. We're gonna link that in the show notes for people to check it out. What other coordinates can we direct people towards if they want to learn more? I mean, you know, if folks are bootstrapping software. Uh, companies are interested in becoming software entrepreneurs, microconf.com is, it's like the the longest running and the largest worldwide community for um, bootstrapped and mostly bootstrapped founders. And it's, you don't have to be a developer. Like there are a lot of non-technical folks that come in, there's designers or subject matter experts that come in and are like, I want to build an app in this. And it's education. There's, we have an online community and uh, in person, we match up in masterminds. There's a lot of offerings um, that we do there. Mo a lot of them are free as like a public you know, almost like a public service. And then we charge for a few things basically to, to pay the bills. And that's, a, you know, that's about it on that front. Beautiful. We're going to link all that. And I'm going to link the uh, book starts, start small, stay small. Um, that uh, has helped all sorts of people. And if you're thinking of doing the same thing, I'm sure it'll help you. Uh, Rob, this has been fantastic. Before I let you go, I'd like, like to give you the mic one final time to issue an actionable challenge to the audience. So my challenge is going to be a tactical one. I, I thought a lot about this of whether to make it like a long-term motivational one, but one of the superpowers that I, I've learned is to consume audio and video at faster than 1x speed. And I think a lot of us do this, but to ratchet up my podcast to 1.5 or 2x, to start ratcheting up your audiobooks to 1.5 or 2x, and to get download the video speed controller for Chrome I never watch videos at 1x anymore. So if I come back and review this video, which I I view interviews as game tape for me, of like, I want to watch this and get better, I will watch it at 2x, right? I'm not going to sit 
through 45 minutes of even my own conference talks. So the video speed controller was the clutch one because I used to not watch a video because I would, it's like, oh my gosh, this is so slow compared to everything else. So over the next week, my challenge is today, download the speed controller, or if you listen to podcasts or audiobooks, just kick it up to 1.25 and see if you notice, see if it bothers you. Then two, three days down the line, kick it up to 1.5. Eventually you hit a point where it's just too fast and you don't, you know, each of us can only consume audio or video at a certain speed. But my son does a lot of YouTube, he has super fast firing, you know, neurons, right? 15 year old, he watches YouTube videos at like 2.5. And I'm like, bro, I can't, I can't do this. Cause I, I don't know if it's cause I'm old or he's smarter than me or whatever. But so we, we settle in the middle at 2X, but that has been a, a very subtle and very small, but um, kind of game changing, game changing thing for me. I like it. I uh, I am consistently above one uh, X for podcasts, and it's always interesting to me the shows or the episodes that require I slow it down to really mm. process it. Because sometimes yeah. you're you're kind of consuming, and it's it's not that you're not paying attention, but it, maybe it's just narrative, and it and it works at one point seven five X or whatever speed you prefer. And then sometimes I'll listen to someone who's really getting into the technical minutia of something, or they're just certain people. And, and it's usually they, you know, they're older, they've got wisdom that's just compounded to some crazy level, yep. maybe from listening to audiobooks at, at that speed. And they're just dropping like nugget after nugget. I'm like, whoa, I need to slow down yep. so that I can actually digest this and retain it because it, 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 it it's it's coming in too dense. Yep. I agree. I have those moments as well. Beautiful. Uh, well, Rob, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing some time with us. It's been my pleasure, Aaron. Thanks for inviting me on. We just went deep with Rob Walling. Hope everyone out there has a fantastic day. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the end of my conversation with Rob. If you enjoyed it and want to learn more about the buying of small companies, check out our past interview with Andrew Gazdecki from MicroAcquire. He built a platform to facilitate these types of transactions and has a philosophy about making it easy and low fee in order to sell your business. Go check that out and hit subscribe because we've got some fantastic interviews coming real soon. Thanks for listening. Connect with Aaron on Twitter and Instagram at AaronWatson59.